Good morning, everyone. Uh, let me go ahead and read our passage for today, and then we'll get into it. So we are in the book of 1 Kings, and we're going to read chapter 18, verses 20 through uh, 46. Well, we'll just do 20 through 40, okay? This is the word of the Lord. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to, to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them, gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the son of, sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two sias of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar, and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, 
they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. This is God's word. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord, um, I pray that your word would speak powerfully, that you would be revealing yourself to us as the superior God, and that you would really be turning our hearts to you, that you would be dispelling the illusions of false gods and helping us worship you truly. And I pray, Lord, that as we hear from your word, we would be a people who would be able to say, Yahweh, the Lord, he is God. Um, And we thank you so much that you have revealed yourself um, through this passage, but also ultimately through Jesus Christ, um, the perfect image of you. Um, So I pray, Lord, that this would be glorifying to you and uh, you would be revealing yourself and helping us see your graciousness and mercy and gentleness and goodness to us. We love you so much and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So uh, today, okay, first of all, as I was reading that passage, what were you thinking or feeling? This is one of the most uh, cinematic, maybe. This is one of the most cinematic passages of the Bible where there's a lot of weird cultural stuff going on, um, but it's also one of the most incredible displays of God's power and glory. Um, But there's actually a lot in this passage. Um, So the first thing I want us to pay attention to is um, I want us to pay attention especially to the very beginning, um, verses 20 and 21. Elijah gives kind of an ultimatum. And he says, let there be a contest between two different gods, God, like Yahweh, the God of Israel, and Baal, uh, and I'll explain more about who this God Baal was, but he says something that's really, really interesting that I think I want to start us off with. What does he say? He says, if Yahweh is God, then follow him. And if Baal is God, then follow him. Stop wavering between two opinions. And other, some translations translate it, stop limping between two opinions. So right off the bat, he makes kind of like a powerful claim. And uh, kind of one of the things that, um, one of the things that I would love uh, about our church would be if we were people who would have integrity in the way we think about these questions. Uh, one thing I find to be really interesting, he says, if Baal is God, then follow him, right? He says, if this other God is the true God, then follow him. And so he actually goes, uh, he goes to the logical conclusion of a truth claim, right? Now in church, I think what's really interesting is a lot of the times we are not willing to go to any of these places because they're kind of scary. And so I see a lot of parents, um, a lot of parents don't give their kids the room or the space to ask this question that Elijah asks. They don't give their kids the space to say, if Yahweh is God, then follow him. Instead, they say, Yahweh is God, you follow him. 
But what's interesting is they haven't given the kids space to, to ask that question. And so uh, I think that's really, really fascinating. Elijah actually says, uh, if, God, if Baal is God, then don't follow Yahweh, follow him. And so he's basically making a claim and he's setting up this contest. Uh, and another way of thinking about this, I want, I want to show you how this applies to, to your lives. Um, if you've grown up in church, you've heard a lot of stuff about God, but it's very different to hear stuff about God and to actually venture out uh, based on what God says. So it's basically like, have you experimented with believing in God and trusting him and following after him? And then the other thing that a lot of church kids struggle with is they also are not aware of the kind of, conf- the kind of gods that our society holds up and says, these are gods that are worth following And so as a result of this, because they haven't actually ventured out um, following Jesus or following Yahweh, the God of Israel, um, and they don't understand that uh, if they follow the default of society, then they'll basically be trapped between two different opinions and be like Israel, where part of them will say, I believe in God, I go to church, I'm a Christian, but part of them will say, but what I really love and care about more than anything is getting into a good college or being Instagram famous or like being TikTok famous or being beautiful or being super duper buff or being really smart or having a lot of money. And so this is kind of what I would love for our church. And as a preacher, it's kind of like a weird thing to say, but like what I would love is especially, so I think... I want to give the young kids a lot of credit. Young kids are pretty allergic to BS, and they ask questions. And sometimes as parents um, or as, like, adults in the church, we don't like that because we just want them to do what we say and believe what we believe. But what I think is great is I think kids, especially in our youth group, they actually ask these questions. Um, Is God really God, and is he worth following? Or are there other gods in our culture and society that make for a more meaningful, fulfilling life? And so let me go, at, go ahead and um, unpack this passage. And I want you to kind of use this passage as uh, a template for how to discern which gods are worth following. And so I'm going to make a claim about Yahweh, the God of Israel, and say this is why Yahweh is worth following. But what really matters is not necessarily like the claim that I make personally, but what you actually experience and believe. And you can do this by testing things out. So let me, let me give you one more kind of example. Uh, when church kids often go off to college, um, all of a sudden they have a lot more autonomy and freedom. And as a result of that, there are lots of gods of the society that they have not tried out in a sense. Um, because often their parents will like restrict them from doing things. And so they try the gods of money, popularity, sex, whatever it might be. And here's, here's the question that Elijah is asking and that, that the scripture always claims. It's a wisdom contest and it's a flourishing contest. Will God's way, will worshiping God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, lead to a satisfied human life of flourishing? 
Or will worshiping these other gods lead to satisfaction and joy and fulfillment? And what I want you to see is, just like in this passage, there are so many examples, and you probably have experienced them if you're older, um, maybe if you're younger too. You've, you've experienced how these other gods, other than Yahweh, other than Jesus Christ, they demand so much of us, and they give so little in return. Um, they don't hear our prayers. They demand of us, they ask of us, and they don't, uh, they don't give us anything in return. Whereas the God of Israel uh, actually is so incredibly different. So let's go ahead and look at um, this passage. So first I want to look at kind of the terms of the challenge, okay? So there are two, there are two, there's Elijah making a challenge, and then there are the prophets, and the, I'm going to unpack the terms of the challenge. I'm going to see, compare and contrast the offerings that the different prophets give, and then I'm going to show you the response of the Lord of the storm, and then finally the response of the people, okay? You guys got it? Terms of the challenge, offering the prophets, blah, 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 different points. Okay, so let's go ahead and look at the terms of the challenge. This is from 1 Kings 18, 23 through 24. What are the terms? Let two bulls be given to us. Let the prophets of Baal choose one bull, cut into pieces, lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, lay it on the wood, put no fire to it. You call upon the name of your God, I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So all of the people of Israel are watching this contest, right? Um, Ahab, the king, calls all of Israel and says, we're going to have a showdown. And, you know, some, like, some people say this is like a gladiatorial battle in Madison Square Garden. Or it's like a sports arena. Or it's like televised globally, right? This is the equivalent back then of a really, really big event. Um, what are the terms of the conditions? The prophets of Baal and Elijah each have a bull. They're going to put it, um, cut it into pieces and put it on the altar and then pray that their God would send down fire to consume the offering. Um, and whoever's God sends down the fire, they are the true God. Can you see how this kind of makes sense? Um, I want to suggest to you that... Uh, when you live as a Christian or you live as someone who follows a different God, you are making this kind of claim and contest. You are having this kind of contest with your life and with your functional trust, like where you put your trust. God is saying one thing about what's meaningful and good and how to live, and other gods are saying something different. So let me give you a few kind of dumb examples of this. Um, there... I really enjoy uh, weightlifting, and in, in particular, I enjoy barbell training. And there is a thing called Starting Strength and a book by Mark Ripito, and this is called the Bible of weightlifting, of powerlifting. So powerlifting is like bench press, squatting, deadlifts, military press, all this other stuff. And so at the very beginning of this book, Mark Ripito, he's a totally ridiculous person, um, he is like super duper duper anal about every single element of every single lift. And so everyone makes fun of him for just being like way too like hard about everything. But he says in the beginning of this book, this totally funny claim where he says, the single most important thing in life is your physical strength. 
Now, I read that book, that beginning of the book, and I'm like, really, dude? The most important thing in life is your physical strength? Now, you might be kind of laughing at him, right? He has made physical strength into a god, in a sense, and he's saying, I'm going to orient my entire life around one pursuit, which is to build my physical strength. And then the experiment that he's kind of doing with his life is, will this lead to my thriving? Is this a good decision to make? Will this make me happy? Will this make me satisfied or will it not? And he's, not, he's going one step further. He's not only saying, I'm going to make this experiment with my life, but I want to persuade you that physical strength is the single most important thing in your life and that you should spend all of your time and energy and money and thought doing the same thing that I did. So that's like a really kind of ridiculous claim, right? Because most of us would not say, maybe like a few of you OD brothers, <laughs> would, you, would you guys say that physical strength is the most important thing in the world? Like you spend a lot of time working out. Um, but I want you to think for a second about your life. What is the God or claim that you are like setting out um, with in your life? What's the claim you're making? What's the wisdom you're following that's like Mark Ripto? So for some of you, like uh, when you look at um, a lot of demographics or statistics regarding like social media, um, social media is extraordinarily damaging to middle school and high school girls and has led to tremendous, uh, like tremendous damage to mental health of especially, of a lot of people, but especially middle school and high school girls. And I think part of the reason for that is because social media kind of presents a certain God to people, and it, normally the God is kind of like your physical attractiveness or beauty, um, like what your body is shaped like. Um, and as a result of that, there is tremendous damage to middle school girls and high school girls. I mean, there are lots of other reasons that social media is so damaging. Uh, it, it's, a lot of it has to do with like cyberbullying and different things like that. But I just want you to think, what is the God that you are building your life around and how is that working out for you? How is that working out for you? These are the terms of the game. Uh, what God, when you pray, will send down fire and kind of validate that he is the true God. And then in our lives, the terms of the contest are, what will you put your functional trust in? What will you build your life upon? Will it be Yahweh or will it be a different God? Okay, so let's, let's keep on talking about what the terms of a contest are. I want you to look at a few uh, observations about what's going on here. So um, as I was looking at the background, the cultural and historical background, uh, one thing that I didn't realize was Elijah is giving the prophets of Baal every single conceivable advantage. Did you kind of catch that? So number one, uh, Mount Carmel there are some commentators um, and some archaeological research has actually shown that Mount Carmel was probably a site of, like, it was basically one of the major sites of worship for Baal. And so Elijah, when he chooses Mount Carmel, he's basically saying, I will go to your home turf. I will go, and again, uh, back then, people understood places as to have power, Right? So you go to a place, and it's almost like the spiritual power is concentrated in this area of Baal. And so Elijah is basically going into enemy territory, 
and saying, I'm going to do this contest on your home turf. The second thing you see is the profits of Baal have a huge number advantage. It's 450 to one, right? Where Elijah's all by himself. And so, like you would think, if you were a god, if you were a god back then, um, the way this would work is the more people that are shouting out to you or the more people that are making offerings, the more power you have, right? Or the more you would respond to them. If, like, if, you, if you have like a thousand people shouting and like doing all this stuff, then you pay attention, right? Because you can get some good offerings or whatever it might be. Um, and so Elijah has a huge disadvantage because he has so many less people. And then the third thing you see is Eli the prophets of Baal have a huge gear advantage. I don't, I don't know if this makes any sense, but, but this is like two sports teams and one, one person is playing like, you're, you're playing like football and one team has all of the like shoulder pads and the helmet and everything and the other people are playing in their boxers. Like who's gonna win? Who's gonna win? It's gonna be the people with all the pads and stuff because they have a huge advantage. They can run into the people with their shoulder pads and feel very little, but the person who doesn't have the pads is gonna get bowled over, gonna get bruised, battered, broken bones. And so the prophets of Baal, they have a, they have a material advantage because Elijah intentionally dumps tons and tons of water on the offering. And so it says, not one time does Elijah dump water on the bull. Not two times, not three times. He dumps it not just on the bull, but on the wood surrounding it. And the water actually fills the trenches surrounding the sacrifice. And so Elijah is basically saying, I am so confident in my God being the right one that I'm going to give you every single conceivable advantage before the contest even begins, right? Those are the terms of the contest. So now let's look at let's let's look at kind of our next point. This is from 1 Kings 18:25 and let's see what the prophets offer to their gods. This, these are the prophets of Baal. They oh yeah, the other material advantage whatever, it's kind of dumb, but Elijah lets them choose the bull and that also kind of matters because like if he was to like finagle he, like he could kind of fix the the bull like put flammable material in the bull or whatever um, or figure out some tricky way of making it combust. Um, who's that? Who's that calling? God? Is that you? Um, okay, so let's look at the prophets of Baal. They took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they made. Okay, so what offering do the people of Baal make? Um, from morning until noon, so for hours on end, they're crying out to Baal, right? But then if you look later on, it says they limped around the altar they made. They're actually making another offering where they probably would have been kind of like dancing or, you know, it's like you imagine like Native Americans doing rain dance. Like it kind of would have been like that where they're doing some kind of motion around the altar to try to get Baal to pay attention to them. Now, uh, and potentially the reason why it says they limped is, does anyone do dancing seriously? Has anyone done dancing? Um, dancing is extraordinarily grueling and physical and tiring, and you need to be extraordinarily athletic to dance for any given period of time. But these guys, 450 guys, are doing it from morning till noon. So for hours on end, and it's not just like regular, like, I don't know, what's like a really low energy dance? It's like a high energy dance. And so by the end, they're getting tired and they're limping around the altar that they made. 
And they keep on crying out, answer us, Baal, answer us. And then what does it say? There was no voice and no one answered. But let's keep going. So how does Elijah respond to this? Um, and this is one of my favorite, okay, this is like, I don't know. Uh, in the, when you read the Bible, uh, you should not always very literally apply whatever the Bible says to do. But this is one passage where I, I wish that I could literally apply. what Elijah starts mocking the prophets of Baal. And he says, cry aloud for he is a god. Now, what does he mean by that first thing? He's basically saying, uh, this is where all you kids who read like Rick Riordan or those different books like about Greek mythology, there's a lot of fiction that's been written um, in uh, like the young adult literature about Greek gods and stuff. And so picture Greek gods, they're kind of people who are more powerful than normal humans and they do really human people stuff. So they cheat on each other, they eat food, they like, they get mad at each other, they get in, they're really petty, all of those things, right? And so Elijah's kind of saying, cry aloud for Baal is a god, right? Where it's like, um, maybe he's busy, or maybe he can't hear you, maybe he's doing something else. And then he keeps on going. Either he is musing, so he's deep in thought, he's like studying for a test or something, he's thinking, or he's relieving himself. So he's literally saying, Work harder to get his attention because he might be using the bathroom. And this is probably, I mean, this is like way up there for one of the most like offensive kind of, it's also kind of funny to me, but it wouldn't have been funny. Like that, that would have been extraordinary. I mean, like, I, it's like you can't, that would have been so sacrilegious and offensive to the prophets. And so he is goading them. He's goading them and he's making this kind of like mockery of their religious practices and of their God and saying, oh, maybe he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Now, a little bit of background on the God Baal. Um, the word Baal, I mean, technically it's pronounced Baal, but don't worry, it's too hard to say over and over again. So just say Baal. Um, Baal is a generic term for Lord or master. So a lot of the times we think Baal is a personal name and it means this God right? The specific God. It's like Zeus. But actually, it means a generic term. Um, however, uh, for these people, it meant, a pro it kind of was a term used to describe one particular God. And a lot of people think it's a God called Hadad. And this God was basically the equivalent of Zeus. So he would have been really powerful. And in particular, he would have been the God of storms. So he could bring the rainfall. He could bring lightning. He could bring fertility, and as a result of that, he was the most influential, powerful god in this region, and there would, he would have been extraordinarily influential. And can you understand why? He is the god of rain. For people in this region, as we saw last week, um, they were in a drought, and God in particular used Elijah to say, I'm going to keep rain for, from falling for three years. Why did God decide to send a drought? Because this was Baal's territory, right? Baal had the power over rain, and Elijah was saying, you guys, all you Israelites, you want to worship Baal so that Baal can benefit you when it comes to rain. The reason they would have worshipped Baal was because he could send a lot of rain so their crops would be healthy and plentiful, 
and so they could make be uh, they could be happy, they could have enough food, they could be economically stable. And not only that, he was the god of fertility, which means, um, and this is where some of the practices that Baal worshippers would use had to do with temple prostitution and sex. Okay, so you could say Baal is also kind of like a god of fertility and sex, where if you make an offering to him, then you have a lot of kids and. Back then, kids equals money and kids equals power. Because if your city does not have enough kids, your army will be weak and you'll get taken over. Or if your family doesn't have enough kids, then they can't farm well enough, so they can't make money, so they can't be financially stable. And this is why everyone wanted to worship Baal, because he had power over all of these regions. But then Elijah said, okay, is Baal really the god of rain? Uh, Let's see. And then he prayed, and Yahweh, the God of Israel, said, you're not going to have any rain for three years. How powerful is Baal really if he can't, send, he can't beat Yahweh? He can't send rain even though Yahweh says no rain allowed. And so they would have thought he's the Lord of the storm. But Elijah's saying, what kind of Lord of the storm is this? Is he busy? Like, why isn't he coming down and sending the fire? What's going on with him? Is he relieving himself? Is he on a journey? Um, when, when he says, is he on a journey, the other thing about Baal is, do you guys know the story of um, Persephone in Greek mythology? Um, she basically is the goddess who, of, the, of the crops and whatever it is. And during like the winter, she goes down to Hades, and there's this whole story about why she goes down to Hades, and then she returns from Hades during the spring or during the springtime, so there's a harvest. And this god, Baal, actually had something very similar where during the winter, he would go down to the underworld, and so that's why, or sorry, during the summer, he would go down to the underworld, and that's why rain wouldn't fall, right? During the summer, this was a really dry, arid region, Middle East, all that area, and so they had to explain, oh, if Baal is the god of the rain, why isn't it raining during the summer? Oh, it's because he's like off on a journey. You know, he's somewhere else, and then he would come back, and then the rain would fall again. Okay, so Elijah is actually showing his knowledge and understanding of their worship of this God, and he's mocking them. What else do they have to offer to the God Baal? So this is kind of like escalating, right? Where they start off by doing the dance, you know, doing the dance, um, and and they're crying aloud to God, and they do that for hours on end, and then Elijah starts making fun of them and says, oh, is he busy? He's using the bathroom. Why isn't he doing anything? And then what do they do? They cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. So this is really kind of gruesome and difficult, Um, but I want you to just consider uh, the gods we choose exact a cost from us, whatever god you choose. Um, When you choose to worship the god of beauty, um, that's why so many women have eating disorders, and uh, sometimes even they self-harm because they feel bad about themselves based on the way they look. And that's actually really similar to what's going on here. Or if you look at other people who worship the god of money, uh, these are the people who are willing to do whatever it takes. Like, I will work 80 hours a week, 90 hours a week, I'll travel all the time, I won't sleep, I'll just dedicate all of my life to the pursuit of making money and it exacts a cost, a toll. And you see this where um, a lot of people have health issues when they work so hard, right? Um, or they like use unhealthy eating habits or like whatever it might be. Um, because the God of money exacts a toll on them. 
Or another example of that is when, you know, like I, I was using the like Bitcoin example because like Bitcoin went down a bunch last week. Um, when you put all of your eggs into the money basket, what happens when financial difficulties hit? It exacts a toll on you and you can't handle it anymore. You are anxious, you are stressed. All of your worries come from this God who seems like he's not coming through from you, even though you paid so much to win his allegiance, right? So this is what the, the, priests, the prophets of Baal have to give to their God to get Baal's attention, right? They're crying aloud, they're cutting themselves until the blood gushed out upon them. And then what happens? He doesn't show up. No one heard them. All of their efforts to try to get his attention and there was no response. Now let's look at what Elijah does, what his offering is. So um, I'm gonna kind of zip through this. Elijah took 12 stones, the 12 stones represent the tribes of Israel. He built an altar in the name of the Lord. He made a trench around the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. So basically he made a big trench that could be filled with a lot of water. He put wood, he cut the bull in pieces and put it on the wood. And then he says, fill four jars of water. So these are big jars of water poured on the offering. They get these big jars of water, they pour it on the offering one time, two times, three times, four times. This is what Elijah does. And then, what does Elijah do? Then he starts dancing. Then he starts cutting himself. Then he starts sacrificing something really, really valuable and precious to get God's attention. No, he simply prays. He simply asks God, and this is a really cool prayer. He says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. So he calls God by his name. He knows who God is and remembers that God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. So he's thinking back to how God has revealed himself to his ancestors. Let it be known this day that you are God. His entire concern for this prayer is just that people who are present would know that God is God, that Baal is not the true God. That's all he's praying for. Let, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. And then he says, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. So now, what is he praying for? He's praying for the hearts of Israel, that they would stop following Baal, which demands like you have to dance for a long time if you want to worship Baal. You have to cut yourself if you want to worship Baal. Um, but this God of Israel, he's saying, look at all the damage that worshiping Baal has had on you. And especially as a Christian or a follower of Jesus Christ, um, when you worship other gods, um, Elijah is saying, stop wavering between these two different gods. And again, like this really hits me because like there's so many, there's so many areas like, honestly, I think as I grow more and more as a Christian, um, Puritans would talk about this. They would kind of say, like, when you start off as a Christian, everything's really great and really happy, and you experience the joy and love of God all the time. But then as you get older, sometimes it becomes uh, God kind of slowly and surely reveals to you areas in your heart and life where you're, you're sinful, and you, in a sense, like, this is an area I didn't realize was a huge struggle of mine. And he slowly reveals these areas over time in ways that you can handle 
so that, or ways that he can handle, so that you can bring them to him and confess to him and experience the gospel once again. Um, and so as I was reading this, I was just like, this is really what I long for, for myself, where there are all of these areas where I worship other gods. And I don't want to. There's, there's like a part of me that really hates that. But there's a part of me that's so attracted to these other ways of living. Like sometimes I think, like, it would be so much easier for me if I wasn't a Christian in this area. Because you could be so much more popular. You could just do what everyone else does. And it would be so much easier to not have to deal with the kind of like, like I, go to, I, I would go to Ashley's um, like work events or whatever. And then everyone comes up to me and they're like, oh, so what do you do? And I'm like, uh, I'm a Christian minister. <laughs> You know, and, and, and then they just kind of look at me and they're like, I don't know how to respond to that. And it's not even that they're necessarily like against me, but it's more just like, I did not expect that answer. I thought you would be a software engineer and I don't really know how to respond. How do I make small talk with a Christian minister? Are you judging me? I don't know. Um, and, and so like, that's where it's like, it would be, sometimes it'd be so much easier because people are just like, they know what to make of you. But really like this, this passage, like God is God. Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, is God, and if he's God to you, if you have trusted him and believe in him, then there's this question Elijah has. Why are you wavering between two different gods? Why are you limping between two different gods? If you say that to be true, why aren't you following him? Why aren't you trusting him with everything? And all I want to say about that is this is both like a penetrating question, but I would also say... Um, like, God doesn't throw everything on you at the same time. So I would just say, don't worry too much about it um, unless God is very specifically pointing out areas of in your life that you need help. And, like, kind of let the process of discipleship take its course, okay? That's kind of what I would say because it, it can be kind of overwhelming if you're constantly trying to identify all of your areas of weakness and sin. I would say that's not what it's about. Like, let God reveal those things to you and then bring them to him over time. And over time, you will experience what the Bible calls sanctification, where you become more and more like Christ and the fruit of the Spirit um, and your holiness grows and grows over time, okay? So this is what Elijah offers, a simple prayer. He doesn't pray for a really long time. He doesn't do a lot of crazy stuff to get God's attention. And this is honestly another area where this passage hits us in the church, where it's like, how often do we think that our kind of brainless activity for God is what gets God's attention and what gets God's power? I honestly feel like this is what's going on in the passage too, where you see this in the New Testament as well, like in the Sermon on the Mount and different things, where it's really not that complicated to pray to God. It's really not. It's really not that complicated to be a Christian in some ways. In other ways, it's complicated. But, and I have biblical evidence for that because Peter says that Paul is hard to understand. Anyway, um, in many ways, it's very simple. In many ways, it's very simple. Um, God's spirit is in you and leading you and guiding you in the truth. And so all you need to do is to be receptive and sensitive to him and then respond to him in the ways that he's prompting to you. And you will grow. Um, you will become more and more like Jesus and that's all it takes. It takes simple prayers. You don't have to do anything really complicated or make any sort of special sacrifices to serve and love God or to grow in your faith. Um, that's a difference between Yahweh and Baal. It's very simple. Um, so let's keep on, 
uh, going, let's look at, let's do a little bit of recap. So Baal is a God you have to dance for, right? Baal is a God who you have to like make all sorts of offerings and like you have to like run a mile every day for this God. Baal is a God you have to cut yourself for, where Baal cares less about you than he does about, um, Baal really doesn't care about you and you have to do special things to get his attention. And then finally, Baal doesn't answer you. Baal is not paying attention to you. And I've always, I've always thought about this in different areas for us, but like, like I'm, not, I'm not trying to be super mean, but like you guys, when you apply to college, colleges don't care about you. They really don't. And all of you people who are working, for the most part, your company does not care about you. Your com- I'm, I'm not, I don't want to, like, I'm, this is not 100% true, but, but it's like, it's, it's often pretty true. <laughs> like, the, the price of the stock is more important than you as an employee, right? Um, and that's what these other gods are like, where they really don't care about you. And, and so, like, that's where the contrast between Baal and Jesus Christ and God are so incredible, where Elijah experienced the provision of God by the river when he was fed by the ravens. The widow in Sidon, who was, she was in Baal's territory. God loved her so much that he sent Elijah to go get her and introduce the God of Israel to her so that she and her family could be provided for her and that so she could come to be saved and have faith. And so that's like God saying, I love this widow who is a worshiper of Baal so much that I will send Elijah into enemy territory to save you, widow. And that's the way that God feels about you. Baal exacts a cost and a price. If you want to be beautiful, that will exact a cost and a price on you. God does not exact a cost on you. He sent his son to die for you. Isn't that so different than these other gods? And so Elijah is just making this claim. It is so much better to follow the God of Israel than it is to follow any other God. And as a result of that, if you take that to its extreme, his claim makes sense. If God is God, then follow him, which means give him everything. Now, again, for all of you youth, the problem is sometimes your pastors or sometimes your, the adults in your life, they're like, you know, God is God, like worship him. But you, you're not sure yet. And so all I'm saying is like, parents, take it easy a little bit, okay? <laughs> like parents... Trust God that he is reaching out to your kids and be an example of what it looks like to follow God. And then over time, your kids will have an opportunity to come to know him and trust him. But you can't let the cart lead the horse or whatever it might be. You can't get ahead of yourselves and want your kids to have the faith that you have before you give them time to grow and introduce God to them. Okay? Um, So does God hear your prayers? What do you have to sacrifice to get his attention? What has your God done for you? How does God respond? Number one, the fire comes down and it not only accepts the offering, but it burns up the wood and it burns up the stones and it burns up the dust and it burns up the the water in the trenches. So this is not just a regular fire. This is the most glorious, powerful, hot fire um, that you see. And this is God's response to the simple prayer of Elijah. The simple prayer of Elijah. He didn't have to do any posturing or special actions. He just simply followed Elijah's prayer. God, or Sorry, he, he prayed to God and God responded. And this actually demonstrates something so special about God. God is not, uh, there's that song, um, uh, the, 
in the, the highlands or whatever, where it says, you're not that hard to find. When Elijah prays, God is not that hard to find. When Elijah honestly seeks after God to respond, God is not that hard to find. God will be hard to find if we're limping between two different gods. And we're saying, God, I love you, I want to follow you, but I really can't sacrifice what I truly desire, which is getting into the best college or getting the best job or always feeling comfortable. Like, I can't sacrifice that um, for you, God. That's when things get hard, and that's, that's when God often disappears, the way he kind of did with this drought, right? It's when Israel has divided loyalties. That's, that's when you hit, in a sense, blockages, and when you get stuck in your Christian life, a lot of the times it's because of that. But also God uses it as an opportunity for you to repent and um, come to know him more in deeper ways. Okay. Uh, so uh, how else does God respond to the prayer? He also responds by ending the drought, which is really, really amazing. And you see this later on in verses 41 through 46. Um, God ends the drought, and this concludes the whole contest, right? Um, And you see more about this later on, but God is totally more powerful than Baal. God is the true Lord of the storm. God is the true Lord of fertility, where he provides bread and oil, for the widow and for Elijah in a time of famine. God is the true one who reveals himself by sending down fire. But I want you to uh, know this, and we're finishing up here. Um, This actually completely changes the way you read the Gospels as well. Because when Jesus is on, um, calms the storms, when Jesus heals the dead, when Jesus does these different miracles, he's actually saying, I am, and God, I am God, I'm human, I'm God, I'm the Lord of the storm, I have power over nature, I have power over disease and life and death, just the way that they would have claimed Baal had power over these things. And not only that, he was willing to uh, have power over them, but also give up all of that power to die on a cross, to do what? To turn the hearts of Israel back to God, to turn our hearts back to God and reconcile us with God. And so... I really love this passage in his prayer where it says, Answer me, O Lord, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. This is what God sent Jesus to do, to reveal who he was, where Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. We are heavy laden. We labor, we're burdened. For the most part, because we are following after other gods. But Jesus says, if you take my yoke upon you, and the image here is of an ox and a master, right? Where Jesus says, if you let me be your God, your master, if you follow me and obey me, I will make your burden light. I will free you from the hardship. And so the the most amazing thing is when you experience this in your life, where recurrent sins that you've always struggled with um, maybe for some of you, you have a lot of like, you know, issues about like your body image or whatever it might be, and you've struggled th- with this for a long time. But then you come to Jesus and you realize that Jesus looks at you and says, you are so beautiful and I love you so much. And you experience that and you say, I really don't have to kill myself trying to look like that. I don't because God loves me so much. And that frees you. 
if you follow that God, it's going to go nowhere. And so I, I, I would actually encourage you, like maybe if you are a kid, I want you to ask your parent, what is an area that you've experienced freedom from a false God? That would be a, such an interesting conversation if you asked a parent that. I'm kind of curious what the parents would say. Um, what's an area where you've experienced freedom from bondage, where your fundamental allegiance and desire has changed, and that it was so much better to follow Yahweh than it was to follow that other God? This is what this passage is all about. It's a God contest. It's a wisdom contest. Is it better to be a Christian and know God and trust him and follow him? Or is it better to follow these other ways of the world? And the claim that Elijah is making, the claim that scripture makes, the claim that Jesus makes, the claim that I would make is in my life, this is true. It's so much better to follow this God, the God of Israel, than it is to follow any other God because he loves you so much and he was willing to die for you and just so that he could be reconciled to you and give you new life. Um, so go to him, uh, or even if you don't know him yet, take some time and try to understand who God is and who Jesus is, and then take little steps where you say, I'm, I, I'm not sure if you're there, God, but I want to ask you, are you there? Can you reveal yourself to me? And then take little steps of faith where you try obeying God, not just saying you know him, but actually say, okay, I know what you want me to do, God, and then I'm actually going to do it, and then see how God responds. And I think this is where the glory is. This is the power of God in our lives, um, where it will come down. He will reveal himself to you. You will encounter him personally in the way that all of Israel saw this fire come down from heaven, um, and you will be assured of God's reality, and you will come to know him and trust him. Like, that's what it means to come to salvation, that's what it means to grow as a disciple, where you see him work, you trust him, and then you have you give up those other allegiances to follow him alone. Um, will you pray with me? Dear Lord, I pray that you would uh, reveal yourself to us through your word and through your church in ways that would help us lay down any other gods and uh, that we would be able to get rid of them by your power and follow you alone, and that we would experience the joy and goodness of trusting you and following you because your commandments are not burdensome. You are not a harsh master. You don't demand unreasonable um, things of us, but you simply want us to know your love and then serve out of the gratitude and joy we have for what you've done for us. I pray, Lord Jesus, that um, people would experience the rest and joy that comes from knowing you and turning to you today and this week. Um, I pray, Lord, you would turn our hearts to you and forgive us for the ways that we've been drifting. Um, but I thank you so much that we are not saved because of our faithfulness to you, but because of the faithfulness of Christ and his sacrifice. We love you so much and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.